Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, welcome to Heritage Matters. I'm Dougal Stevenson. This week, there's to be a video documentary on the Chinese garden. I talked to curator-director Sean Brosnan. A new roof for St. Dominic's Priory, Jane Edwards reports. Keith Scott introduces two letters, one on the voyage to New Zealand on a sailing ship, and Emma Lyons reads a letter to a Kiwi cousin which tells of the Irish Rebellion of 1922. In a new feature, Kay Thompson remembers when. Bill Southworth reads some advice from the Otago Daily Times to single women. Learning to cook, apparently, would help them find a husband. And Jane Edwards has an update to the refurbishment of the Gresham Hotel. But first, the Heritage News. The refurbished St. Patrick's Basilica in South Dunedin recently held its official reopening after undergoing repairs for the past 16 months. The Basilica was opened in 1894 and is the work of renowned architect Francis Peter, who also designed the basilicas in Ormeru and Timaru and the Roman Catholic cathedrals in Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin. The refurbishment of the church was done in conjunction with the redevelopment of the St. Patrick's site in McAndrew Road, which includes a community centre and garden and a playground. And another historic Dunedin church is also celebrating a milestone. The Kaikorai Presbyterian Church in Tairi Road will mark its 150th anniversary over the weekend of July the 2nd and 3rd. The first service was held in 1866 in the first of three churches on the current site. The foundation stone for the present distinctive brick church was laid in 1906 by the then Mayor of Roslyn. Four stained glass windows were installed to honour founding members. The original wooden church was demolished to make way for the present hall, which is in constant use by both church and community. No decision has been made yet on the future of one of Omaru's prominent landmarks, Columba Presbyterian Church, which closed in April following the dissolution of the congregation. The church, designed by Ormeru architectural firm Forrester and Lemon in Victorian academic classical style, has a Category 2 classification from Heritage New Zealand, which recognises it as a place of historical and cultural heritage significance and value. It's overlooked the harbour and the town since its consecration in 1883. However, the dwindling number of parishioners found it increasingly difficult financially to maintain the Ormeru stone building. A spokesman explained that until a decision is made about the future of the empty building, one committee is looking after ongoing maintenance and another is focused on the long-term plan for the building. As you probably know by now, Dunedin has seen a record-high June the 22nd temperature of 19 degrees. Keith Scott's been looking at some historic Otago central temperatures that went the other way. They say when winter comes it bites with its teeth and lashes with its tail. So far this year, the beast seems reluctant to leave its lair. But that was not the case in Otago in 1903. For some time, the lowest temperature officially recorded in New Zealand was minus 21.6 degrees Celsius at Ofa in central Otago in 1995. In 2011, 
Niwa announced that the new official low was to be minus 25.6 degrees, recorded at Ranfilly in August 1903. But I have a letter written from Naseby, a few miles from Ranfilly, about the night that temperature was recorded, and this is what it says. We are having hard times here. It is like the North Pole. The thermometer last night was 52 degrees below freezing. Converting Fahrenheit to Celsius, that means it was minus 29 degrees C in Naseby that night. That report from Keith Scott. And that's the Heritage News. Regular visitors to Toitu, the Otago Settlers Museum, will know that it's never quite the same. New exhibitions, new displays, fascinating and informative. Toitu is never still. Significantly at the southern end is the Chinese Garden. Curator Sean Brosnahan is presently working on a video documentary which will illuminate the Chinese contribution to Otago's history. Indeed, why we have a Chinese Garden. Essentially, it's the culmination of a very long history of Chinese in Dunedin. They first came here in 1866. They made a signal contribution to the revival of the Otago goldfields in the late 1860s and then, you know, segued into other things. That Once the gold ran out, they became market gardeners and fruiters and so on. They've got an amazing history, and it's a long history, and it starts here in Dunedin and ultimately came together to be expressed, the heritage of it, in the Dunedin Chinese Garden, and that's the story we're trying to tell. Is this a video documentary a departure for the museum? Uh, no, it's, it's really something we did um, a couple of years ago when we did a big showcase exhibition on Dunedin in the First World War, and we um, went overseas and filmed all the battlefields that Otago soldiers fought on and called that The Journey of the Otagos. And the sort of guerrilla-style filmmaking we adopted seemed to be very successful, helping people understand where their forebears actually fought and died in places like Gallipoli or France or Belgium. So when that was seen, people in the Chinese garden said, hey, you could do something like that about the Chinese, you know. And they kept nagging away at us until finally <laughs> we caved and said, yes, we'll give it a go. So that's what we're doing. It's the same sort of style. It'll be very similar sort of template to Journey of the Otagos, but it's called Journey to Lan Yuan. So what's the potential for this? Is it to go out to the nation or will it just be retained here at the museum? Yeah, no, it's really to go into the Chinese garden in the place of a big Chinese history exhibition which they'd like to have over there but they don't have space for. One day they might have a gallery to do that. At the moment they don't. So we've adopted this approach to an AV, a film, yep. that people can come and they'll travel broadly in, in the film and see all the places in Otago, lots of places in Otago that Chinese miners and uh, market gardeners and so on um, were based, and also the home villages where the Chinese came from. We're going to China next month. Oh, really? So do you think the Chinese history in Otago is well understood and appreciated? Um, no. I know that it isn't because we have already done a big circuit of 42 different locations in you know the back blocks of Otago, and we found a real hunger by people there who were very interested in the Chinese heritage of those areas and would have liked to know more, and they were really enthusiastic about our project and very, very helpful. Oh, wonderful, because this, I mean, my curiosity as a kid was, a, was aroused, of course, going through Central with yes. all these little stone structures, That's right. overhangs, yeah. the, the mystery of them. Yeah, the mystery. I mean, you can see, you know, um, when you go to places like the Roxburgh Gorges we did last week and we filmed some stories in little cave shelters and, you know, just the ruggedness of the landscape. And it was a freezing cold day and it wasn't even the middle of winter. You know, just the challenge of the environment and to think of those men so far from home, you know, 10,000 kilometres away from Guangdong where they came from and still committed to that place, sending money back and ultimately going back themselves if they were successful. You know, it's such... Uh, 
dramatic story mm. and such a rich human interest story. And of course, there's the other side of it, which we, you know, don't like to think about now and how badly treated oftentimes the Chinese were, how they were discriminated against and penalised. And we regret that now in many cases, keen to make up for it in a way. And You're not taking somebody who has a Chinese heritage back with you when you go back to China? No, those sorts of programs have already been done. We um, are going sort of from an outsider's point of view, in a sense, I suppose, and providing a kind of more objective stance. You know, it, it'll be it'll, there'll be emotional elements to it, but isn't that direct personal connection? It's a real, you know, I'm the interpreter, just like, as I am here as a curator at the museum, showing you places and telling you stories about this place and this person, how they relate together. So that's the sort of approach we're adopting, much as we did with Journey of the Otagos in the battle scenes. And this will be on on show. It's be on show in the Chinese Garden. Yeah, it'll be on show all the time, and and probably uh, probably we're not quite sure about this. It'll also be online in the way that Journey to Targos is. Anyone can look at that any time. You know. Sean Brosnan, curator at Toitu Otago Settlers Museum. There's exciting news for Dunedin heritage lovers with the announcement of grants totaling more than half a million dollars for a new roof at St. Dominic's Priory, which is expected to be the start of a complete refurbishment of the building. The landmark building, which opened in 1877, was designed by Francis Peter and built in concrete, then a comparatively new material for Dunedin. It was a school for day girls and boarders, and also the convent of the Dominican sisters who taught in the school and lived out their religious vocations in an enclosed environment. The Priory closed more than 30 years ago. Sean Toomey, the coordinator of the Priory's redevelopment, told Jane Edwards about the building's deterioration since then. It's um, abundantly clear we have a major problem with the roof. I think anybody out on the street can look up there and see that, yes, there are, there are slates missing, there are slates loose, uh, spouting's deteriorated, downpipes are missing, water uh, staining evident down the outside of the building. So over years, the um, difficulty of maintaining the roof and the gutters up there, we have slates that are loose, we have damaged slates, though they have to be replaced. Gutters are blocked, water is uh, able to enter the building through missing slates and through uh, seepage from those gutters. Internal gutters are a problem because they're blocked and very difficult to do anything about. So uh, water damage and moisture getting into the building. About half of the 17,000 or so Welsh slate tiles on the roof will be reused and the remainder imported. And while the retiling is going on, some earthquake strengthening will also be done. The Lottery Grants Board has given $485,000 towards the roof project and the Dunedin City Council 100000 leaving the Catholic Diocese to find another 300000 why has it taken so long to save the building? According to Gerald Scanlon, the general manager of the diocese, the maintenance of the building was neglected for a long time. Then a development plan fell through and everyone became somewhat dispirited. Now he says the climate is right. The Dunedin Heritage story has taken root and a number of developers have come into Dunedin or the local people and they've taken hold of some of our significant heritage buildings and turned them into something you know, rather wonderful for the city, which gives everyone a level of confidence about being able to do that with a structure like the Priory. And of course, a few years back now, about 2010, we commissioned a, a conservation plan for the, for the, for the building, uh, which outlined, I think, very in a very compelling way what were the critical requirements that needed to be attended to so that the priory could be saved 
and, and then potentially repurposed. And it was very clear from that that we needed to attend to the roof, which gave us a real focus. And then secondly, that um, realistically we needed a commercial use for the building, which took out of play, I suppose, fanciful notions that it could be reused for, for church purposes, really. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that combination of factors, you know, plus we've, we've had to sort of fix some things that have gone awry at the time and try and maintain um, uh, a reasonably clean facade as well. So, you know, we've been working within our resource space to try and keep the building going and then waiting for the right sort of partners to turn up uh, to help us um, create a long-term solution. We're open to a range of commercial uh, arrangements, um, and you know we're we're short of, of actually confirming that at the moment. I think that what I've said to various people I've talked to over the last year and a half or so is that we will make whatever arrangement needs to work work so that the building can have a future. The interior of the building is not part of the current roof project. That will be left for a future developer to restore. Sean Toomey explains when the replacement of the roof will start. We know we have a lead time of three months for the supply of the slate. So if we were to start right now, basically it's going to be September at least before the slate will arrive in the country. The project itself is set down as being an 18-week programme. So you really, you're looking towards um, you know, somewhere around about April next year. Theoretically, it could be completed. That report from Jane Edwards, and in a future program, Jane will talk to Sister Elizabeth Mackey, who was a pupil at St Dominic's College, then became a Dominican nun and teacher at the school. Now Keith Scott and Emma Lyons tell us a tale of two letters. Our colonial migration story has been written in countless histories and will be told in countless more. But it can also be shown in the most simple of ways, just two letters. In 1866, 12-year-old Sam Law from Lanarkshire was sent out to New Zealand to join his older brother Peter. Shortly after his arrival, Sam wrote the following letter home to his third brother, who was to join them the following year. Waikawaiti, May 17th, 1867, Dear Brother I have got out safe to Peter, and I must tell you that I got on fine coming out in the ship for I got acquainted with the cabin cook and I got the very best of meat. I was a perfect sailor, for I was up the top of the mast every day, and I got acquainted with the cabin steward, and he took, when he got his leg hurt, he took me into the cabin for a while, and I was just a little steward. I did a good job, and I got the very best of meat there too. I saw any amount of whales, sharks, and large birds that flies about the sea. Peter has got a good deal of cows here and horses and I am learning to milk the cows and riding every day. Peter has put me to the school. We get very good meat out here. It is legs of mutton, hams, eggs, honey, jam and eating be three times a day. We are both in good health and hoping this to find you the same. That is all I have to say at present. When you come out next year, I hope you will have a good passage. Your affectionate brother, Samuel Law. On the surface, this little letter does not seem to say very much, but it is hugely important. It is very rare to have writing from a 12-year-old colonial from the 1860s, and perhaps even rarer still that somehow this letter found its way back to New Zealand. But it also contains everything about what this new land represented to arriving hopefuls and what it became 
or rather, what people made it. These words of young Sam's are about not only making the best of the journey, but taking opportunities. His letter is about working at a new life and making it work for him. And it is about the reward, a topic with which Sam is preoccupied. Very good meat. Eating, and even more, eating three times a day. The Law Brothers were a colonial success story as Central Otago farmers, community leaders, and interestingly, many of their descendants were journalists and passable poets. On the other hand, I know nothing of the writer of this next letter except her name, Alice Mulholland. And her story has a very different setting to Sam Law's. The outbreak of the Irish War of Independence, June 1922. Some of the Mulholland family of Port Glenone in County Derry had gone to the United States, and another branch had gone to New Zealand and settled in central Otago. Alice was still in Ireland when she wrote to her New Zealand cousin. Eden, Port Glenone, County Derry, June 26th, 1922. Dear Cousin Mary, I suppose you are waiting patiently on the photos, but I am sorry we never got the length of getting them, as we would have to so far to walk to the place where we would have them right taken. But we are thinking of getting over there to you, if God spares us, and so you will see us proper. There is a free passage to New Zealand, and Sister Maggie and I are going. There is not much to be made in this land, and besides, it is very hard to live in at present, as you are not sure of your life. There is hardly anything but war all over. Belfast is nearly all in ruins, and nearly all the Catholics are homeless and a dreadful lot killed. How are times over there? Dear Cousin Mary, Maggie and I are going over there on the free passage, as we think it is a good chance. We could not go to America, as the passage price is too high. I want you to be so kind and ask your mother if she would allow you to send us five pounds and we will pay it to you when we get over there. We are wanting it to help us make us ready as we require so much clothes. It is such a long sail and we have barely enough for our food. So if you can possibly send it, we will be very thankful. So dear Mary, we will be going about September. I will have to draw to a close now. Father and all my sisters and brothers join me in sending their love to you all. So goodbye with best respects and love from your cousin, Alice Mulholland. Again, here is a simple letter like Sam's, but this one has the background of one of the greatest tragedies of our time and the need to escape from it. Unlike Sam, though, who has already made the journey, Alice and her sister are only about to begin it worked out for Sam, but not, it seems, for Alice and Maggie. There is no record of them ever leaving Ireland. So these two simple little letters, one from Otago and the other to Otago, are the two sides of the entire colonial story. Dreams attained and dreams unattainable. This is Keith Scott and Amor Lyons for Heritage Matters. Both letters are published in Keith's book, Gimmerburn, The Land That God Forgot to Finish. 
Now for a new feature called I Remember When, in which we'll run the memories of Dunedin people. And first up is Kay Thompson. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. In Dunedin, there were two children's wards in a red brick building on the corner of Cumberland and Hanover Streets. They were Victoria and Jubilee wards and were built to commemorate the 60 years that Queen Victoria had been on the throne since she succeeded her uncle in 1837. They were not like the four bed units now, but had 20 beds in a long room with brown linoleum on the floor. The floor was cleaned using tea leaves, which probably settled any dust. As a child, I remembered learning not to sit on the bed as each had to be pristine with its white linen and red wool blankets. The nurses had white starched headwear, which although called caps were nothing like any caps worn nowadays. These were different from the headgear worn by the sisters and the matron, who made everyone quail when she entered the place. I was unable to eat and so I had a large glass bottle hanging upside down on a metal stand on the end of my bed. This had a long rubber tube which was attached to a needle in my ankle through which I was fed. So that I couldn't dislodge it, I had my right leg bandaged into a long wooden splint. I was too ill to do anything other than watch the liquid level go down. (laughs) Was I pleased when the three weeks was up, but instead of letting me go home, they sent me to a convalescent home for five months. Kay Thompson, remembering when. We've come across some advice in the Otago Daily Times of July 1877 that would raise eyebrows, if not the ire, of women today. The advice came in a report on a new cooking school in Dunedin, which young women are advised to attend should they wish to see themselves married. The ODT report is read by Bill Southworth. The School of Cookery, established by Miss Fiddler in the South Australian Hall, promises to be a very successful undertaking. In the special class, there are already about 50 pupils, and in the other classes, they're equally well attended. The necessity of an institution in Dunedin, in which ladies may learn something of the theory and practice of the culinary art, is long felt to be very urgent. The existence of such a school is rendered especially desirable owing to the fact that in Dunedin it is so difficult to obtain servants possessing any knowledge whatever of cooking. It is therefore of the greatest importance that ladies should be in a position to instruct their servants for when a mistress and domestic alike are both ignorant of even the rudiments of the art, the greatest confusion must result in the kitchen and in the dining room. But even if a lady should luckily obtain servants to whom she can safely entrust the affair's cuisine, it is surely something to be gained if, when dishes are placed upon her table, instead of their appearing as mysteries to her, she will know of what they are composed and how they were prepared. And to ladies who have managed without the aid of servants, the lessons will prove to be of incalculable benefit. There is not the least difficulty in following Miss Fiddler's directions. She carefully avoids using any technicalities, and her instructions are given in the most clear, distinct and concise manner. That the Dunedin ladies are in earnest and do not entertain the foolish and absurd idea 
that it is derogatory to the dignity of a lady to be able to direct the management of her own house by possessing a practical knowledge of one of the most important branches of housekeeping is fully evidenced by the very large number of ladies who attend the afternoon classes. Perhaps the ardour of the younger pupils may have been slightly stimulated by the remarks of the gentleman who opened the classes when he stated that a knowledge of cooking would very materially increase their matrimonial prospects. If the most effectual method of laying siege to the affections of the eligible young men in Dunedin is by appealing to their Epicurean susceptibilities, their hearts would surely be in danger of capitulation. Could they glance into the Australian hall between the half-past two and four in the afternoon and there behold the solicitude with which their future comfort is cared for by a large number of young ladies who, with pencils and notebooks like a gallery of amateur reporters, eagerly transfer to paper the words of wisdom which flow from the lips of Miss Fiddler. In the evening, at half past seven, there are classes for those whose occupations do not admit of their attending the afternoon classes. During each lesson, Miss Fiddler usually treats about four subjects, generally comprising plain and fancy dishes, and some evenings being entirely set apart for the making of Scotch dishes. The whole of the cooking arrangements are carried on upon the newest and most approved principles. Those who desire to obtain the instruction in this most necessary art cannot do better than attend the lessons of Miss Fiddler, as that lady's enterprise certainly deserves all the patronage which it can possibly receive. That report from the Otago Daily Times of 1877 was read by Bill Southworth. Another building in Dunedin's warehouse precinct, the Gresham Hotel, has been saved, with refurbishment well underway. Already the facade on Cumberland Street has been restored and is attracting favourable comment from Dunedin people, while the Retro Street frontage should be completed in a couple of months. The Dunedin City Council granted $20,000 from its Heritage Fund towards the exterior renovation. Jane Edwards has the story of the former hotel and its future use. Dunedin Heritage property developer Stephen McKnight wasn't sure what he was in for when he acquired the dilapidated Gresham Hotel in Queen's Gardens about 18 months ago. He says it's the same for a lot of projects like this. It's not until you check out the condition of a building thoroughly, then envision potential uses and work out the cost of it all, factoring in external financial influences, that you really know how the project will finish up. He was happy, though, that structurally the building was not too bad when he bought it. One of the things which um, made me believe that it was going to be okay was the fact that it had been occupied throughout its life. So if if there was a leaky roof or a maintenance problem, um, somebody was going to deal with that because they couldn't have water flooding into their bedrooms and stuff. So although there was, you know, the bits of rock, the various... um, things that you would expect. It wasn't, um, wasn't a lot beyond what you might expect. The building was originally the Terminus Hotel, built in the 1880s, and so named because of its proximity to the railway station and jetties. It was designed by John Arthur Burnside, one of the first architects born and trained in New Zealand, in his case with the well-known firm of Mason and Wales. Among his other buildings are Transit House in Park Street, the original Settlers Museum and the building adjoining the Terminus Hotel. The name of the hotel can still be seen on exposed brickwork inside and also in glass over the main doorway. 
Stephen McKnight says he wanted to retain what he could of the original building. Well, the basic bones of the building were good, and, and the basic layout of the building fits in with what we were trying to achieve. You know, so, so you've got apartments in this case, and you, you can get your bedrooms in, and you can get your lounges in, and, and they're, they're of a size and a scale which, which works. So, um, so, so in that respect, it all sort of has come together uh, without... Because, I mean, the, to, to make it work, you've got to work with the building. If, if you're trying to do something which doesn't fit into the building, therefore you'd have to take a lot of walls out and you've got to impose this, this new structure into a building that doesn't suit that, you're spending a lot of money and you're not actually achieving what I believe you know, we should be achieving with an old building that's using the old building. The two upper floors of the building have been converted into eight apartments, some of which are nearing completion. No final decision has been made yet about uses for the ground floor. Jane Edwards with that report. This program will be repeated at 7pm this Sunday. It's been brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust with support from the Centre for Research on Colonial Culture at the University of Otago. FM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.